Good morning. We live in strange times, especially when we think about technology. Some of us are old enough to remember before the internet was prevalent. So I used to go play baseball with my brother, build forts, shoot BB guns or something. Uh, but with the internet, we saw a lot change. So it is a technological revolution, and we're living through it right now. The speed at which things changed have, has become faster and faster. A place in California called Silicon Valley was the start of much of this, and uh, guys in Silicon Valley have become billionaires. Some of the richest men in the world are uh, from Silicon Valley. So with this increased technolo technological advancement, a number of super wealthy tech guys have sought to find an answer to death, to stop death from happening. So in a 2017 New Yorker Magazine article uh, that was titled The God Pill, Silicon Valley's Quest to Live Forever, they documented this. Some of the biggest names we would all know are investing billions into billions of dollars into this technology. So for example, Jeff Bezos, who's currently the richest man in the world, founder of Amazon, has invested billions of dollars towards the project to prevent death and live forever. Literally, live forever. Not just live longer, but live forever. The same is true of Sergey Brin and Larry Page, co-founders of Google. So they've invested in projects that will hopefully allow people to literally live forever. At Google, they hired a director of engineering named Ray Kurzweil, and he has said he believes that in this lifetime, in his lifetime, they will find a way to prevent death, to live eternally through the help of biotechnology and nanotechnology. Now you can see what's happened. They've surmised, they've amassed tons of wealth, and they've been able to have so much authority over the world and control all sorts of things through technology that they're saying, well, let's, let's do the ultimate thing. Let's figure out how to beat death, how to control and have authority over life and death. Well, that is our subject for this morning. Today, we are going to be talking about life and death we are using God's Word, we're studying God's Word in Luke 7, 1 through 17. So you can open it up or it's in your bulletin. And our main point for this morning is that Jesus has all authority bringing life to a dying world. Jesus has all authority bringing life to a dying world. So we'll break this up into two sections. 1 through 10, verses 1 through 10, will focus on Jesus having all authority. And then verses 11 through 17, Jesus brings life to a dying world. So the main point is that Jesus has all authority bringing life to a dying world. So our first point is that Jesus has all authority. So let's take a look at Luke 7, 1 through 10. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. This is speaking of Jesus. 
Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with him. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had, who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So what's going on? Let's talk about some background. First of all, a centurion is a Roman soldier in charge of 100 soldiers. So this would be a Gentile, so someone who's not Jewish, not a part of God's chosen people, but a Gentile, someone outside of the Jewish faith, Jewish uh, uh, ethnicity anyway. And they soldiers were not permitted to marry. They would move around a lot, and so they weren't permitted to marry. But they did have slaves or servants, and sometimes they would become members of the household and they would become very close. And that's what happened in this case. We see in verse 2 that this servant is highly valued. And the servant was about to die. So in verse 3 it says, When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servants. So he sends Jewish people, the Jewish elders, to Jesus to ask Jesus to heal the servants. And then notice uh, what they say in verse 4, 4 and 5. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So now we find out that this is a man of faith. He believes in the God of Israel, even though he's not Jewish. He loves the nation, and he would have made a decent amount of money. His salary would be decent. But to pay for the synagogue, the place of worship for the Jews, would be a considerable sacrifice for him. So this was a man of faith, and the Jewish elders recognized this. But notice further, he goes on and sends another delegation. So we read, and Jesus, in verse 6, And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, then the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. So in that time period, the custom was that Jewish people, if they went to a Gentile's house and ate, they would become unclean. So not necessarily a sin, but ceremonial unclean. It would be annoying because they would have to go through purification rituals. So you see what he says. He says, I'm not worthy. Now compare this to what his, the Jewish elders described in verse 4. They said he is worthy. 
But his own conception is that he is not worthy for Jesus to come even to his own house. So part of this is because he's a Gentile. But then part of it is because he realizes who he is compared to Jesus. Now, who is this centurion? Let's look at verse 7 and 8. He is a man of authority. So it says, Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So he's over 100 people. So we can imagine he's a boss, and he's got 100 employees. And he's such a boss that there's not a lot of bosses. He's the one boss, and he can say, you're fired, and you don't have a job. He can tell them to do something. They need to do it. So he's a man under a, he, who has authority. And he's also a man of faith. So in verse 9 and 10, it says, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servants well. So the servant was at death's door, about to die. And he believed that just Jesus saying the word would make him well. His faith was such that Jesus marveled, or he was amazed. So in this passage, this part of the passage, Jesus is not mentioned much. But we learn that the centurion's faith is accurate from what Jesus says. So we can look back and learn about Jesus from what the centurion's actions are. We learn that Jesus has total authority even to bring life itself. So let's look at back at the centurion's conception of himself. He believes that he's not worthy. He's a Gentile, but he's also a faithful man. He's God-fearing. He's spent his own money to provide for the synagogue. He loves the nation of Israel. He loves God's people. He says he's not worthy. The Jewish elders say he is worthy. So what's going on? How do we make sense of that? Well, it's relative to what you compare it to, right? So I'll just say this. Uh, when I was growing up, I played ping pong with my brother and dad. We're good, we're competitive, so we get to be pretty decent. When I would go to parties or something, I would always win against my friends. And so one week, we saw in the newspaper that our little community, our little town, was going to have a ping pong practice at our community center, and it was open for everyone to come, and it was free. So we said, great, we'll go play some ping pong. And so we go there, and there's all these people, and they, they look pretty good. And we come to find out that this was a way for a ping pong team to practice for free if they opened it up to the community. And so it was only my dad and I who were there that weren't playing competitive ping pong. <laughs> and so an older man came up to me and he said, oh, I like the way you play. Why don't you come play my friend? He's down at the other end of the table. Uh, the other end of the room. So down at the other end of the room was where the really good guys are, and I knew that. I would come to find out that this guy that uh, he asked me to play was a professional ping pong player. And so uh, I'll never forget that game, because when this guy served, I never returned it once. <laughs> really. I mean, it was unreal. I hit it, and it just bounced. It never even got to the table on the other side. I didn't score one point. 
And I realized, oh, I'm not that good at ping pong. <laughs> I had thought that I was good at ping pong. So, so it's just the idea of relative, right? So, okay, if I'm amongst my friends, I seem pretty good. But when you're um, amongst someone who's really, really good, you, you are dwarfed. You realize that you don't compare at all. And that's what's going on here, right? So the centurion is a faithful man. But when he's in the presence of Jesus, who's totally worthy, he realizes that he's not worthy at all. So think about this. Let's compare Jesus to him, and you can be thinking how he might have been thinking. Because he, was, he had an accurate conception of who Jesus was. The centurion was over 100 people. Jesus had authority, has authority over every single person in the whole world now and forever. In Colossians 1, 16 and 17, I'll read this. It says, for by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Christ and for Christ. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So wow. The centurion helped build the synagogue. Jesus built the universe. That's a huge difference. The centurion says to some people, say, and they go, Jesus can command the world into existence. The centurion was faithful, but in the presence of God, he realized that his faithful works were nothing. And we see this same concept in Isaiah 64, verses 6. It says, all our righteousness is like filthy rags. So we're not even close to being compared to Jesus. And he knows that. He had faith that Jesus would just say the word and he would be healed. So his view of Jesus was accurate as well. He had faith. As a man of authority, he would tell people to do something and they would do it. He recognizes who Jesus truly is. Jesus can tell someone to do it. And of course, it's done. If he says heal, the person is healed. So we can imagine, and probably all of us have had a situation, maybe most of us have had a situation where sometimes in death, we know the person's going to die. So they have some time, they can call the family together, they can say goodbye. And everybody knows it, it's a foregone conclusion. There's nothing that can be done, it's just a matter of going through the process. Well, that's the situation the centurion servant was in. He was nearing death. And he says, say the word and let my servant be healed. So the question today for us is, is this our attitude about Christ's authority? So we can think of the most pressing issue we have right now in life, whatever you're worried about, something from work or something from school or something from church, something from family. Do we have this idea in our mind? Do we have this belief that... If Jesus wanted to, he could say the word, and it would all be fixed. Now, that's not always how Jesus works, but the question is just, if he wanted to, is that our belief? Do we believe he could take care of it? Because that's what we should believe, and that's what the centurion believed. He has all authority, even over life and death, and with a word, he can do what he wills. So the right response is to trust him like the centurion trusted him. Now, if we have this attitude, 
it will also show up in how we pray. So we will pray for the change that we want. When we are anxious, we will pray to God about the things we are anxious about because we know just as he's healed the servant, he can take care of whatever we're anxious about. So consider this from Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So if we have faith in Christ's authority, we will pray through our anxieties. Now, what happens when we don't have this attitude? When we don't acknowledge Christ's authority over all things? So have you ever thought, if I just try harder, I can get this done? I just got to work harder. Uh, recovering addicts have a saying called white-knuckle sobriety. So white-knuckle sobriety. So the idea is, through self-will, they will try to be sober. They will try to get rid of their addiction. So like our knuckles or these things right here, if we clench our fists and just, I'm going to do it, I'm going to make a list, I'm going to make a plan, I'm going to do it, and I'll get it done. Right? And so this becomes white, we lose the blood right there. So that's what is called white-knuckle sobriety. Now, uh, have we ever thought like that? So imagine, our, or those of you who may not know Jesus, think about, do you really think you can beat your sin? You can just get through it. You cannot. Do you know that you deserve death because of your sin? So what's your plan? Really, I mean, are you going to just beat it through sheer will? It is impossible. And if you don't believe me, just try it. Just take something that you recognize as wrong, let's say lie, and then try to not lie for one week. Just never lie for one week. Just will it, just try to do it, give it your, all your effort. You will find that you will fail. Do you know that Jesus suffered the punishment and conquered death by raising from the dead? Can you do that? You cannot. So there is no other option except to trust in Jesus. White knuckling through this world will not work. We don't have enough willpower. We surely will fail. Jesus is the only way. So in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This, and this same authority is the authority that Jesus used to heal the servant. He has authority to forgive sins. He is good, and if you come to Jesus, you will not regret it. And what about for the Christian? What happens when we don't trust that Jesus has the authority? Do we go back to white-knuckle living? So this one, I'll go ahead and say that this is something that I struggle with. And working through this passage was convicting. So I have this idea sometimes, like, I can do this. I'm just going to make a list. I'll get it done. Just go, go, go. There's nothing wrong with trying harder. There's nothing wrong with making a plan and trying to get things done. But... 
oftentimes we don't need to grin or grit and bear it and try harder. We need transformation. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So how are we transformed? We look at the glory of Christ through Scripture, through prayer, and seeing Christ in others through our church. So this self-will, this idea that we can get it done if we just try hard enough, we can just white-knuckle our our way through the Christian life, it is impossible. This is the wrong posture. Instead, think about this posture. Father, I'm anxious about this issue. I know that you can take care of it much better than I can ever take care of it. Have mercy on me. Please let your will be done. Thank you. Is that our attitude? That's a challenge for myself, maybe for you as well. In verses 11 through 17, continues on showing how great Jesus is. So the second point today is that Jesus brings life to a dying world. So let's look at verses 11 through 17. It says, Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bear stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So let's set the stage. Jesus had just healed the centurion's servant. People were following him, a crowd, as well as his disciples. And the widow's son, her only son, had died. So in verse 12 it says, As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So at this time, funerals would be public things, there would be public uh, processions, and they would carry the body in a bier, which is like an open casket. So the body would be seen. You could see the body. The body had died recently. Um, And then there were large crowds from Jesus, but then also large crowds from the from the funeral procession. Now, we can imagine. Imagine it was you. Imagine you've married, got a spouse, you're happy, you're growing together, and then you have kids, or you have a kid, and you're investing time into them, and you love them, and you, it's a house full of love. Now imagine that your spouse dies, and you go through all the grief of that. It's a tragic situation. 
Now imagine that your one son dies, so you're left with nothing. No family, no immediate family. And you might think you've lost everything. And this, but in our situation, this widow has lost even more because certainly in that context, she would have relied on her husband for provision when her husband died. And she would have also relied on her oldest son or only son to provide for her when her only son died. So this is a tragic situation. Indeed, she would be set up to be a charity case. So she, she would probably have no way to provide for herself after that. She would have to rely on people giving things to her. So this is the widow's situation. Now what's going to happen? Let's read verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. So Jesus' response to that is compassion. And then let's read on in verse 14 and 15. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bier stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. So he spoke, and the son came to life. The same thing that happened to the centurion's servant. He spoke, and the servant came to life. So in this dying world, Jesus needs merely to speak to bring life. He healed this man who is dead. And so what is significant about healing? We're just going to take a moment to talk about healing. We may think, well, big deal. We've got medicine. We can get healed from sicknesses. This is pretty common now, right? We've got good medicine. It helps a lot. The medicine can certainly be good. But when we're talking about Jesus, this misses the point of what he's doing. And as Christians, we know what is the end game? What is the end of everything? What is everything moving towards in history? It's moving towards being with God forever in his presence where there's no sickness, there's no sadness, there's no death, and God is life. In his very essence, he's life. So that's the end game. To be in God's presence where there will be no tears or sadness or death, but only life in Jesus' presence. So what does that have to do with healing? When Jesus heals, Jesus is coming, in a sense, from the future. He comes from the future where there is no sickness and no death, and he is giving a foretaste of things to come. He is in control of life and comes from the presence of God where there is no death. So we know that God and Christ is eternal. We read that in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. We also know that Jesus is already with God. So in John 17, 24, it says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So when we see healing, this is a visitation of the future. This is a picture of what it will be like coming into the present. So the future eternity breaks into the present and gives life. When we see Jesus heal as he does here, our mind should be thinking that this is Jesus demonstrating that he is the one who can bring life into a dying world. Jesus' healing is eternity breaking into the present. 
And isn't that what they recognize in the passage, too? They have seen a visitation from the future, from eternity. So let's look at verse 16 and 17. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole Judea and all the surrounding country. So imagine if you saw a dead man who came to life. Really. I mean, imagine if you saw a dead man who was made to come to life. Now, we live our life thinking we kind of have things, we understand how the world works. We know how things work, and we've got categories to help us organize our life and get through it peacefully. Then one day, you see a man who was dead, and you knew he was dead, and he was brought back to life. Now, that would shatter your life. That would shatter the categories that you had in your mind, that you thought you could survive in this world, that would be amazing, and it would be fearful. You would be thinking, what's going on? This is a different world than I thought I was living in. And that's precisely what their response was. They said, fear seized them all, and they glorified God. So there have actually been certain times throughout history where this these glimpses of the future have come into the world. And there's, uh, there's one in particular that we're going to point to, because notice that they say, we have seen a great prophet. The Jewish people knew the scriptures, they knew the Old Testament scriptures, and there's a background here. So good Jews would know the story of Elijah in 1 Kings. Now over, the, uh, over this past year, one of my goals has been to read whole books of the Bible at a time. And so when I was uh, over spring break, I had the opportunity to read some books, and I read 1 Kings. And when you're going through the Old Testament, like right before that, it's the Samuel, and you have all these wars, and it's exciting, and you see how awesome David is. And, uh, but then you get to 1 Kings and the story of Elijah, and it's different. It's like, whoa, what's going on here? There's all these miracles happening. Like, this is interesting. And so... Uh, for example, Elijah prayed that there wouldn't be rain, and then for three and a half years it didn't rain. And then there was a famine in the land, and God tells him to go to a widow's house and ask for food. And the widow says, I only have enough oil and flour to make a loaf of bread, feed it to my son, and then we're going to die. And Elijah says, no, no, just, just make me food, and you'll see. And so she makes him food. And then the jar of oil and the jar of flour is replenished. And she keeps on making food and keeps on making food. That's a miracle, right? And so then we come to this passage that is really similar to what we see Jesus doing in 1 Kings 17, verses 17 through 24. So this is the same characters are this widow that has just made uh, Elijah food. She had one son. So it says in 17, verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 17, After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, 
O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. We see the same thing, almost very similar thing, happening with Jesus. There's a widow whose only son is raised to life. So not only is he a prophet, so Jewish would be Jewish people would be thinking, yes, this is a prophet. We know about this from people like Elijah. But he's also God himself. Uh, so if we look at uh, verse 16, go back to our passage for one. Verse 16, it says, Fear sees them all, and they glorify God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. So the God of the universe has come, broken into the present reality, and visited his people. Jesus, in his very being, brings with him life. He raised this, uh, this widow's son from the dead. And this is a foretaste of his life's mission. So notice the parallels, too. There's a lot going on in this passage. But notice the parallels. The widow's only son died. Well, the God of the universe would have his only son die. The widow's son was raised. God brought back his only son from the dead. Of course, there is a difference, right? Um, Jesus' life, his body was glorified. It's a different body. This was just brought back to life. The widow's son was brought back to life, and then he would die later. So there's a fundamental difference, but there's also a parallel. It's showing that Jesus is in control of life itself. So Jesus, in his essence, his life, let's read John 1, 4. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And Jesus gives this life to all who will believe. John 5, 24 says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So just as Jesus raised the widow's son, he also offers all who believe life, eternal life. And when we think about eternal life, we shouldn't just think about forever. But it's also a life that comes from eternity. That's the type of life it is. It's the life in God's presence. So that doesn't start when we die. That starts, for those of us who are in Christ, it starts the moment we became in Christ. We can be in eternal life right now. And then notice something also from this passage. Jesus gives life to all kinds of people. He is no respecter of persons. So we can contrast the centurion and the widow. In fact, there's, it's hard to think of so many differences, two people that have so many differences. So the centurion is a man, the widow is a woman. The centurion is basically well off. He's fairly wealthy. The widow would be basically poor at this point. 
Centurion is married, the widow has been married and even had a kid. The centurion had a slave or a servant to serve him. The widow would have no support or just rely on charity at this point. So there's very few similarities between these things. So what's in common? The commonality is that Jesus brings life to them both. It doesn't matter for Jesus if you are poor or you are rich, whether you are from Europe or Africa or China or the U.S., None of that matters when it comes to who can have eternal life. Jesus gives eternal life to all who believe. So what does this mean for us? Um, This study was also convicting for me uh, as far as how I think about my unbelieving friends. Do I have a sense of urgency? Like, I really want them to know Christ. And so... uh, We can think about that for this passage. Um, This is the only way, and he offers it to everyone. So some of us might be more familiar or comfortable desiring people who are, like, at our wealth or wealthier to come to know Jesus. Maybe we struggle having that same sort of compassion for those who are poor. Maybe we look down on the poor, and we don't actually want the best for them. We just kind of ignore them or despise them. Or some of us might struggle the other way, where we have a heart and compassion for poor, we want them to come to know Christ, and then we kind of despise the rich. But Jesus is Lord of all, and he offers eternal life to all. And so maybe that can be a prayer for us, to open opportunities to share himself with anyone in our our sphere of influence, whoever we come in contact. So probably all of us come in contact with people from all over. And rich and poor is just one category. There's all sorts of categories. Even in the case of the widow, there's single, there's married, um, there's rich, there's poor, there's a soldier who moves around a lot, someone who probably was stationary. Uh, So we can think about that for our own lives. In 2002, 36,000 strips of bamboo with Chinese calligraphy were found in Hunan province. So they dated these to around 200 BC, so around the time right after the Warring States period in Chinese history, so when you first started to have a unified China. And on these trips that archaeologists found, they found 48 related to medicine. What they found through translating these is that the Chinese emperor had become obsessed with obtaining something that would give him eternal life. And so these strips of bamboo actually had the responses from far out villages. I mean, these messengers went all over. And some people in the village said, no, we don't have the elixir. We don't have the potion that will give you eternal life. One said, we have it. It's in the mountains. It's an herb in the mountains. And interestingly, this emperor became obsessed. And it is probably the case, from what I read, that he thought he found it, and he drank mercury, which is poisonous, thinking that it was it would give him eternal life, and it caused him to die early. Over the over last summer, I had a uh, I had I got to go to his tomb, this emperor's tomb. Some of you have probably been there in Xi'an, because this emperor also got obsessed with afterlife, right? So he wanted to find eternal life, but then he also was apparently extremely afraid of 
death because he created life-size sculptures, these terracotta warriors, to protect him in death. So you see that he became obsessed and actually fearful of death. He wanted eternal life. Very wealthy, right? He did everything within his means to get eternal life. It's similar to the, the, tech, the tech billionaires now. They're very wealthy, doing everything they have at their, everything at their command to try to get eternal life. But the tech giants and the emperor thought their wealth could buy life. They thought that they could get authority over life and death. They were looking in the wrong place. If they looked to Jesus, they would know that it is Jesus who gives life. So I want to I close by reading a passage in Isaiah that talks about the life that Jesus gives. And it's not about having enough money to be able to buy it. It's freely given to those who will believe. In Isaiah 55, it says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are life itself. Thank you that you sent your Son, who is in the presence of you, to share life to the world, to those who believe in him. And Father, we confess that we often have not relied on him, but have been self-willed in trying to deal with those things which uh, we struggle with, instead of relying on the life that you give and knowing that you can take care of it much better than us. We ask that you would allow us to have opportunities to share this life with others, no matter where they're from, no matter what their background is. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.